This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 31st, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, Science's Editor-in-Chief Holden Thorpe joins us to talk about coronavirus vaccines. Where are we now? What needs to happen next? And how to make sure people will be willing to get a vaccine when it becomes available. Next, senior correspondent John Cohen talks with me about a researcher who's found herself at the center of the coronavirus origins controversy and why she says Donald Trump owes her an apology. Finally, researcher Gert Vandersnick discusses his science advances paper about a new process used to uncover the original painting in an important piece of artwork completed in 1432. First up this week, we have Science's Editor-in-Chief, Holden Thorpe. He wrote an editorial on coronavirus vaccines this week. Hi, Holden. Hi, Sarah. Great to be with you. So your editorial starts with the positive. What's the good news? Well, the good news is that in just a short period of time since we got the sequence of the novel coronavirus, the international scientific enterprise has done an extraordinary job at describing the virus, its genetics, the structures of all of its component parts, elucidating what happens to our immune systems when we get infected with the virus, at describing neutralizing antibodies that can be used as therapeutics, and as developing vaccines that can be used soon. And so it's really hard for me to remember a time where in such a short time, Science has done this much on a particular problem. On so many fronts all across the world, scientists have been working together. But as you rightfully point out in your piece, so much of this effort, this excellence has been overshadowed by social and political issues. Can you talk a little bit about the ones that you call out in your piece? Yeah, I think that the fact that the people of the United States in particular, but it is also true around the world, can't come to a consensus about the fact that we should be using public health measures like masks and distancing 
to suppress the virus while we wait for science to come up with these solutions, I think has become such a powerful issue in the media that it's overshadowing the progress that science is making. And so at a time that should be really a triumph for science and all we have achieved, and of course, there have been some twists and turns along the way, but at a point that really should be a time when science is being celebrated, uh, it's completely overshadowed by the partisan and political debating about who's responsible for the virus and what the best steps are to mitigate it between now and when we get the vaccine rolled out. Scientists, the public at large, they're seeing vaccines as the solution. And it's not been smooth sailing on the vaccine front, but there is progress. What's the status right now of vaccine development? Just a general overview. There are a lot that are in phase three clinical trials. That's the last phase. One of the most high profile ones is the Moderna mRNA vaccine, but there are other vaccines around the world that have already made it to phase three. And so the chance that one of these would read out in December or early January, I think is quite high. It's probably a 60-day trial and you can't get everybody enrolled all at once. But we're getting to the point where we're going to start seeing some phase three data on these. And if the phase one and two data are in any indication, then when folks are vaccinated, they're going to generate a robust immune response and eventually we'll be able to show that that provides protection against the illness and would take really something unforeseen if that wasn't the case. So far, so good is what a lot of people would say about where we are in the vaccine. And we're really further ahead, I think, than a lot of people expected by this time. There are some concerns, though. For example, the U.S. had this project called Operation Warp Speed, which I guess gave the nod to a bunch of companies to go ahead, gave some money, but that wasn't exactly a transparent approach to picking likely vaccine candidates. Yeah, I think first of all, the name of Operation Warp Speed has been pretty unfortunate. Warp Speed is something from science fiction. It's not something that exists. (laughs) That's right. That's one of those things where if you look it up, it's only got fictional antecedents. Yeah. On top of that, sending a signal that we're going this fast may cause some people to doubt whether the vaccine is going to be safe enough. And then within Operation Warp Speed, and I, I feel for them on this because they are trying to partner with the companies that are going to push the vaccines the furthest, the fastest. But there's been a lot of chatter about whether it's been transparent and whether it's been equitable the way that they have selected the different vaccines. And some of that's just inevitable. I mean, you have to work with industry on this. The government doesn't have the ability to produce hundreds of millions of vaccine doses. And so the industry partnership was always going to be there. But, you know, once you have that, then naturally that causes some people to wonder whether things are be done in a, in a fair way. Mm-hmm. Now, I see some parallels between this fight against masks, people wearing masks or social distancing, and vaccine hesitancy or fear or refusal of vaccines. And this is going back to before the current crisis. In 2019, the WHO declared vaccine hesitancy one of the biggest issues worldwide. This is a problem that was around before the coronavirus pandemic. And now we're seeing mask hesitancy Are you concerned that there are going to be vaccine hesitancy issues as the coronavirus vaccines come online? 
Yes, I'm very concerned about that. And I think a lot of other leaders across the American federal government in particular have voiced concerns about this. We've been dealing with the anti-vax movement for quite a while now. It's based on, in part, on an unfortunate paper that was retracted, suggesting that there were dangers causing autism from vaccines. That turned out to be wrong. But one of the things that happens in these kinds of political struggles is that the side that's using this information kind of doesn't care whether it was a preprint or a peer-reviewed article or it was an article that was retracted. If it helps their agenda, they'll push on that. And so we've seen a lot of anti-vax movement before this. That's uh, being stoked with the idea that somehow science is a conspiracy to deprive people of their freedom or to enrich science in some way. None of that is founded, but that's the kind of thing that you see circulating. Those very same forces have been undermining the public health experts on masking and social distancing and estimates of the severity of the virus. And now they're perfectly positioned to undermine the vaccine. And that is a scary thing because we need to get enough people vaccinated that there's enough immunity out there in the population to stop the epidemic. Do you see any you know, movement on that front, public health officials or research groups trying to get ahead of this problem? Well, in the editorial, I'm pretty critical of the president because I don't think he's been very clear on this. The anti-vax folks tend to be his supporters, mm-hmm. so he has embraced them over the years as he got elected. And there was even a potential anti-vax, some kind of committee that thankfully never formed early in his presidency. So he certainly benefited from and embraced the anti-vax movement. And then suddenly when coronavirus came along, he started saying he wanted a vaccine sooner rather than later and saying that he's for vaccines. But, you know, I don't think that message is getting through. Certainly, I would be stunned if he and his children hadn't been vaccinated and if they weren't looking forward to getting the Mm -hmm. coronavirus. But he's happy to benefit from the political advantages that come from having the anti-vax movement on his side. So that's a pretty diabolical set of circumstances as we confront trying to get enough people to go to the trouble to get this vaccine so that we can get this epidemic reversed and get back to doing the things that we like to do. At this point, what else can be done to fight against vaccine hesitancy? Yeah, I don't think it's too late for the federal government to get people together around implementing this vaccine, but it's going to take significant change in the way they've been communicating. Mm -hmm. We need to hear from experts on logistics and on medicine and on public health, talking with one voice without any interference about why the vaccine is important. And it would require something that probably can't happen, which is for the president to stop switching the message back and forth as this is going on. We would need a sustained period where the political leaders and the public health leaders were all saying the same thing about how we all need to get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So I hope that would happen. I would be delighted if it did. I think that it would be the best thing for the world and for the United States. But I'm very worried that it's not possible. Say we get past the clinical trials, we get good efficacy and safety results for one or more vaccines. 
we might not have enough right away to dispense it to everyone, or we might need two shots per person. Who gets the vaccine first? How are those rules made and who's going to make those decisions? Yeah, well, those are pretty tough decisions. They would be under any circumstances. But right now, there are multiple committees. There's a National Academies Committee. There's a CDC-driven committee. There's the FDA itself. The NIH has its own project. There is Operation Warp Speed. It's a little hard for me to see how those decisions are going to get made. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, what we ought to do is vaccinate our healthcare workers and essential workers and then people in nursing homes and just kind of work our way out through the concentric circles of risk until we get to the, the folks who just need the vaccine so that they can go back about their normal lives. But again, it's going to take the kind of messaging that we really haven't seen from the administration when it comes to scientific decision making. Why do you think it was important to write this editorial now? One of the things that I think about when I'm writing my editorial is not so much whether it's going to influence the behavior of the politicians. It's really more a way of reaching out to the scientists who you know, are our core constituency to let them know that there's someone who is speaking up for them so that they'll feel motivated to fight on. I mean, I worry about the scientists who are at the bench all day doing this. Many of them are immigrants who have heard anti-immigration messages from the administration, even if there aren't recent immigrants, they're working themselves to the bone in the laboratory. And then to come home and turn on the news and see somebody saying the opposite of what you know is the best for the country can be quite demoralizing. So I tend to think of these editorials as a support letter to the scientists on the front lines who are fighting for the future of the world. All right. Thank you so much, Holden. Yep. Great talking to you. Holden Thorpe is the editor-in-chief of Science. You can find a link to his editorial and all of our coronavirus coverage at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with senior correspondent John Cohen about COVID-19's origins. Before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org news, scroll down a little bit, and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news, scroll down a little bit, click subscribe on the right side. Now we have senior correspondent John Cohen. He wrote this week about a researcher who's found herself at the center of the coronavirus origin controversy. 
Hi, John. Hi, Sarah. You spent a very long time pursuing this interview. Why was this such a key person to talk to? Xu Zhengli is a researcher who has studied bat coronaviruses for 15 years, and her lab is at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Mm -hmm. And her team also was one of the first to isolate and sequence the new coronavirus. She is at the centerpiece of the origin story because she's been studying origin for years. And, and it began with her interest in SARS, which emerged in 2002, 2003. She was on a team that found a bat coronavirus in 2005 that's the closest bat coronavirus to SARS. She actually goes out. There's pictures in the story of her working with a wild bat, collecting samples. Her lab is full of these samples. And then here we are, COVID-19. And in, what was it, December, she was asked to look at samples from people with a respiratory disease and say, what do you see here? Yeah, she was one of several labs in late December that first identified the new virus. The thinking from early in January was, wow, is this just a coincidence that she's located in the city where the outbreak emerges? And Xu has maintained all along that the virus did not come from her lab. One of the problems is she hasn't been all that communicative and open <laughs> with the media. My guess is that's not by choice. China controls information flow. And it, the government has made a point of adding extra layers of review for scientists who study the origin because it's such a sensitive issue. You were able to email back and forth with Xi a Q&A. Were you concerned that the answers that you got from her were vetted either by her institution or even a higher level of the government? The Chinese government has strict control over the flow of information. And it would surprise me if the answers weren't reviewed on some level. Mm -hmm. I've worked with researchers in China for many years. And when you do written questions and answers, which they often require, I just assume that it's being reviewed by others. At the same time, if the answers are addressing scientific questions with scientific answers and data points, it doesn't really matter if it's reviewed, if it's accurate. You ask what I think many people would want to know in this correspondence. Is there any chance that her lab could have been involved in the start of this outbreak? You know, it's very hard to prove a negative, right? <laughs> so how do you prove that her lab didn't have the virus before it entered the human population? But she addressed those questions and she said that everyone in her lab had been tested and no one was infected. They only have cultured three different SARS-related coronavirus samples from bats in their lab. Everything else they have, which is about 2,000 different types of coronaviruses from bats, are just the genetic sequences. Mm -hmm. So she says, it can't be that it came from here because we don't have it and we didn't culture it. The bat virus her group has that's the closest is 96.2% similar to the one in humans. But in evolutionary time, that's decades away. That's a lot of difference. So just to be clear, she does not have a sample that she collected from the past that is COVID-19 that matches what has been causing this pandemic. That's what she says, yes. And she gave a lot of detail about why she doesn't have that. Mm -hmm. What about the claim that it's engineered from some virus in her stock? 
So those are called gain-of-function experiments, and she has published some gain-of-function experiments in the past, and she said that there's nothing she's done in her lab as a gain-of-function experiment or with anyone else that she hasn't published. There also have been scientists who are independent from her who've looked at the sequence of the new virus in humans and said it doesn't look like something that was engineered for lots of technical reasons. She works with bats. She has these viruses, mostly sequences that she's collected from bats. But no one has found COVID-19 in a bat, right? No, no one has found the virus that causes COVID-19 in a bat. And in all likelihood, this is going to mirror what happened with SARS and MERS, where there's an intermediary species. So yes, it originated in bats. Some great-great-grandparent of this virus was in bats. But With SARS, we know that it went into civet cats from bats. Maybe it went through some other species before it got to civet cats. And with MERS, we know it's coming to humans through camels. The general consensus is that there is an intermediary species, or more than one, that harbor the virus that jumped into humans, that it wasn't directly humans to bats. And she also makes a point that I think is really important in one of her answers, and that's that the origin of an outbreak doesn't necessarily tell you where this came from, right? She notes that AIDS surfaced in Los Angeles in 1981. And nobody today thinks that HIV originated in Los Angeles. It you know, likely was chimpanzees in Cameroon. I think that brings up the, another important thing that you talk about, which is that the analysis that was done from the markets there, that they weren't able to find traces of the viral nucleic acids in the animals there. One of her answers goes into more detail than we've had before. She tested frozen samples of animal mm-hmm. meat from the market, but she doesn't discuss testing of live animals from that marketplace. Just to backtrack for a moment, when this outbreak emerged on January 1st, it was made public, the Wuhan Health Commission said, hey, there's an outbreak at a local seafood market, and we've shut the market down and disinfected it. We think we have this controlled. And for the first few weeks in January, the Wuhan Health Commission repeatedly put out press releases saying there are no new cases. It doesn't seem like there's human-to-human transmission. The marketplace seems to be the problem, and we've taken care of it. Well, that's turned out not to be true. (laughs) (laughs) That's to put it mildly. That's to put it mildly. And the marketplace hypothesis as origin, I wrote an article in late January questioning it because the first papers came out showing that the earliest cases often had no link to the marketplace. And that put the marketplace hypothesis into doubt. And Shou Zhongli, in her responses to me, thinks the marketplace might just have been a coincidence or just a cluster of people in that market. Yeah, so to speak, it's a seafood market. It now looks like, yes, there was an amplification at the marketplace, Mm. but that's not the origin. The question that the world really needs to address is how can you gather new data to move away from speculation and start coming up with real hard facts about potential sources for this virus to have jumped into humans. Why is it important to figure out what the actual origin was, where the jump happened? Well, if it's in an intermediary species, there's no reason it won't keep jumping from that species into humans. We need to know that. And maybe it's going to require vaccinating that species as well as humans. 
or it's going to require us separating ourselves more from that species. Palm civets, which transmitted SARS, were being eaten in restaurants. That stopped because of SARS. I think it's really important also to calm the political waters. Donald Trump has accused Xi Zhongli and her laboratory of being the source. And it becomes this political football of blame. You did this to us. And if it's not coming from her lab, if it's not coming from Wuhan, it certainly changes that whole political discussion that becomes so incendiary. After your story went live, it got a lot of pickup from a lot of outlets around the world. This is something that a lot of people are very interested in knowing more about. Are you satisfied with the answers? Do you feel like you're getting a better picture of what happened early on? I think Shoujang Li answering these questions moves the ball forward. That's all I had hoped for, is let's put some more facts on the table and stop all the conspiracy theories and speculation and what if this, what if that? There are all these whispers about this. Let's have a dialogue. And I would like to see the international mission that the World Health Organization is attempting to organize take place where scientists from around the world work with their colleagues in China to find more data and help clarify the question of origin. I don't think anything's settled And I didn't anticipate that Shoujang Li would send me answers to my questions that would put this all to rest. Let's just let people know know that there's a full readout of the Q&A that you did via email. It's a PDF that people can download from your story. And your story has outside comment where you say, look at what I've been told. Does this seem like a reasonable scientific series of events? And I think that both sides are very useful to read. Both the Chinese people working with us And my editors, we felt like, let's make this completely transparent. So there can be no confusion about what we asked and what she said. Often when you excerpt things from an interview, people can complain, oh, that doesn't really reflect what I was saying. I think it's also important to have a balanced outside comment. And we do. We have people who are critical of her answers saying as much. You can read it and decide for yourself. If you're an origin aficionado and there is a small community of people who spend a whole lot of time every day going through the minutiae of origin data, I think they'll find that they learn a thing or two from what she has to say. One of the most newsworthy things I think she had to say is she thinks that Donald Trump owes her and her team an apology. I saw that made the headline. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, that to me was a pretty bold thing for her to say. And often scientists shy away from making those sorts of political declarations. But she said that she suffered because of all the scrutiny on her and her team. And, you know, of course, who wants to be blamed for starting a pandemic? Absolutely. And to prove a a negative is very difficult. Certainly, I couldn't ask her a question that was going to allow everyone in the world to say, oh, okay, (laughs) that one's done. I do think that when you read her answers, that she makes a very convincing case that given the data she's willing to share, that there's no evidence whatsoever of this virus having come from her lab. Thanks so much, John. Thank you so much, Sarah. John Cohen is a senior correspondent based in San Diego. You can find links to his story and all of our coronavirus coverage at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Don't touch that dial. We still have an interview left with Gert Vandersnick on using a new technique to peer under the paint of a pivotal artwork completed in 1432. Now we have Gert Vandersnick. 
He and his colleagues wrote this week in Science Advances about a new combination of techniques for peering into the past of a painting. They focused on an important work, an oil painting that's been used as an altarpiece in the Ghent Cathedral for almost 500 years. Hi. Hi, hello. Can you tell me a few things that make this painting so special? First of all, the painting is considered by many as one of the founding works of Western European art or painting. It was painted by the Van Eyck brothers, who were masters in their art. It was made as an altarpiece for the cathedral in Ghent, in Belgium. It is a very old painting, and it's still in its place where it was meant for. So it was painted for that specific church. How old is it? Well, it was finished in 1432. But it doesn't look exactly like it did back in 1432 when it was completed. There have been some changes to the painting. What kinds of things happened to this painting over the years? As many uh, of these historical paintings, they had a very, let's say, animated life throughout <laughs> history. It has been, uh, has been stolen. It has been hidden during the war, etc., but it's still there, or most of it is still there. It doesn't look exactly the same as it was, as it was designed or painted by the Van Eyck brothers, because it has been overpainted by another artist in the course of the 16th century. Mm. And not just small parts or just details, but the largest part of the paint surface was overpainted. That basically hid the work of these very important painters. And it wasn't till maybe starting in the 1950s that art historians and conservators tried to get a peek under this overpainting. Why didn't the methods of that time, or even more modern techniques, work to get at the mysteries this painting held? The conservators of that time realized that it wasn't overpainted, and they started removing the overpaint also in the area of the Lamb of God, we are now publishing this article on, they started removing the green background around the lamb. And while doing that, they found another set of ears. <laughs> and these are the ears from the original lamb by Van Eyck. So from the 1950s on, it was known that there must be a smaller version or another version of the lamb below the one which was at that time visible at the surface. So this is the central figure of the painting, and it had four ears for a very long time. Yeah, that, that's a, a quite funny story. But mm -hmm. the restorer had, at that time, a lack of time. They had to finish the conservation treatment in something like only one year, which is a very short time for such an important work of art. And also they were lacking this technology that we now were able to supply. Now, I've seen lots of newspaper articles that say, oh, Look what's underneath this painting. We can see what the original artist had sketched in place. But that wasn't possible with this painting. Why was it so difficult to kind of see how it had been changed over time? In the 1950s, the conservator had only one imaging technique that could look inside the painting to the structure of the painting in a non-invasive way. And that's a radiography, X-ray radiography. But it does not allow you to really look at separate layers or look at materials selectively. So what we do now is we use radiation, either X-rays or infrared. We send it to the painting, and then we, instead of just taking a picture, like a radiography, 
we analyze the radiation which comes out of the paint. So we look at the different energies and by doing that, we can identify materials, but we can also look in a more selective way to layers which are hidden below. What are the names of the two tools that you use in combination for the study? So the two techniques are macro X-ray fluorescence scanning and infrared reflectance imaging spectroscopy. And you said they had been developed on different continents? Yes. Here at the University of Antwerp, we've been focusing mainly on this macro XRF scanning technique, which is basically an elemental technique. So it shows you the distribution of the elements over the paint surface and also just below the paint surface. This infrared reflectance imaging spectroscopy was mainly developed by our colleagues at the National Gallery of Washington. And instead of using X-rays, they use infrared, but it's also a hyperspectral technique. So they also look at all the different wavelengths and they look for features inside these spectra and plot them in images. By combining these tools, you were able to see how a painting looked underneath an overpainting. Exactly. We take advantage of the fact that these two types of radiations, they penetrate the top paint layer to some extent. The nice thing is that the materials that are opaque for X-rays are more or less transparent for infrared and vice versa. When you did an analysis here with these more modern tools, what were you able to find out about the painting before taking the overlayer off? If we are just talking about the lamp today, when looking at the head, we saw, for instance, that it's surrounded with like a halo of golden rays coming out of his head. If we map these golden rays with our imaging techniques, then we see that these rays continue below the ears of the 16th century lamb. So they were going underneath the paint of the lamb, while we do see that the original ears by Van Eyck, they leave a reserve for the rays, which is more in line with the painting practice, Mm -hmm. because the rays were usually applied last. And so you first paint the ears and then you put the rays around it. So this already proved that the 16th century lamb was on top of these original rays. With the Mark RF imaging, we could see that this nose was positioned a bit higher. And we could also see that this copper green background was continuing a bit inside the body of the lamp. But what we could not do is look below the white body of the lamp because this is made with lead white and lead white is absorbing the X-rays. So it's blocking our signal. With the other technique, the reflectance imaging spectroscopy, this is not so much affected by the lead white. So we could see below this lead white. And uh, there you could see that the body of the lamp was originally also smaller with more rounded hint quarters and a smaller tail, more sagging back, while this was impossible with MacRixF. Does this level of detail changes extend across the whole painting? Yes, this is also valid for all the other panels. It's a polyptic, so it consists of many separate paintings which were then united in one altarpiece. And we scanned all these wings from the lower parts of the painting. All these changes are visible in all the other parts of the painting as well. But for this paper, we focus on one aspect, which is central motive and the Lamb of God, because that's iconographically the most important part. Did you consider this almost like an experiment where you where you were seeing what you could tell before stripping off the overpainting? 
it's more than an experiment. This information is crucial for the conservators and also the international committee who is overlooking this conservation treatment. It's basically not us who are making these decisions. We simply provide these images and we tell the conservators and Banach experts how they should read and interpret them. In the end, it is their decision if they want to remove the 16th century overpaint or not. Does it also strengthen the case for using these tools, the value of these tools and what they can tell you? This is a very clear showcase for what this technique is capable of and what the impact can be on conservation treatment. These new techniques, this is more or less for the first time that we combine both of them. This painting was completed in 1432 and overpainted in the 16th century. A huge amount of it was covered up. And it's been in that painted over state from about the 16th century to 2012, when the restoration process that you're part of began. The painting looks very different now. What do you notice right away that's different? Well, it looks different in the sense that the quality of the paint by Van Eyck is without any doubt, it's very clear. You do not have to be an expert to see that the quality of the paint handling and the brushwork is a lot better, is much higher than the 16th century overpaint. How do you see these tools, this combination of tools being applied going forward? Do you think that they're going to be key to restoring many paintings in the future? Yeah, I think so. I think that now they're still relatively experimentally and they're only used for, let's say, the top level works of art or the most iconic works of art who can attract this kind of high tech instruments. But I hope that with this case and other cases we are working on, that we are illustrating that this should become a more, let's say, routine way of investigating paintings. Today, these are relatively expensive instruments yet because they're quite experimental. Not all the conservators have access to these techniques, of course, but I think it will become more a routine investigation technique. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Kurt van der Snick is a cultural heritage scientist at the University of Antwerp. You can find a link to his Science Advances paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. The show is edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.